Isaiah in the 12th chapter. This psalm or song of Isaiah. And in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah. For though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For Jehovah, even Jehovah, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Give thanks unto Jehovah. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto Jehovah, for he hath done excellent things. Let this be known in all the earth. Cry aloud and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. Cry aloud and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. Providentially, I believe this morning, we were directed to sing a Charles Wesley hymn. And some of the words struck me in connection with what I intend to bring forth this evening, where Wesley wrote, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, by thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone, in us, in all our hearts alone. Wesley seemed to have the understanding that I have of the one, the Holy One of Israel dwelling in the midst of his people. And there is much cause, of course, to cry aloud and shout. Those inhabitants of Zion, referencing, I believe, in this prophetic utterance, this psalm, those of the church of Jesus Christ. And again, an allusion by Mark this morning, not the gospel of Mark, but the well-delivered gospel by Mark, on Galatians 3.14, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I believe this is what Isaiah is prophetically singing about in this his psalm. The one that we have been looking at. The preface to this psalm, of course, is in the couple of verses prior to chapter 12. The 11th chapter in the last two verses, 15 and 16. And Jehovah will utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his scorching wind will he wave his hand over the river. And will smite it into seven streams and cause men to march over dry shod. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people that shall remain from Assyria. Like as there was for Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. There is indeed here deliverance promised by God 
through Isaiah's psalm. Deliverance promised by God even as he delivered his people through the Red Sea from Pharaoh and brought them eventually, ultimately, to the promised land. One man has written with regard to these matters. One commentator said, taking occasion from the reference of Egypt and the Exodus in the close of the preceding chapter, the prophet now puts into the mouth of Israel a song analogous to that of Moses from which some of the expressions are directly borrowed. He goes on to say the prophet first tells the people what they will say or have a right to say. I believe he means will have a right to say when the foregoing promises are verified. These prophecies and then addresses them again in his own person. That is uh, I say in his own person and in the usual language of prediction. He's speaking about what Isaiah has been directed to guide the people in their song, in their song of praise with prophecy blended in throughout how the Lord is going to be gracious to them ultimately, even as he was gracious to those that he brought out of Egypt. The usual language of prediction, J.A. Alexander has said. This was a prophetic utterance from the mouth of Isaiah. Yes, it was a song, as we've been saying. Yes, it was a, a psalm. But even as in many of the psalms, we discover prophecy. Indeed, David is called in the New Testament a prophet. The prophetic promise we want to look at that we have here in Isaiah 12, in this particular verse. But I want you to notice the connection, at least the connection that I have seen. I'm not suggesting that anybody I read saw it. So I warn you that this is something that I saw. But I see a connection here when we read this sixth verse, cry aloud and shout, Thou inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst of thee, underlying midst of thee, is who or what? The Holy One of Israel. And what is the first verse told us? And in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah. And we have learned that this is speaking of the deliverance or the salvation that he has promised. For though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. And what? And thou comfortest me. Thou hast comforted me. I'm linking that comfort with the Holy One of Israel at the end of this psalm. Thou comfortest me. And great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. This prophetic utterance of Isaiah. Comfort is coming. He is saying. In the midst of thee will be the Holy One. The Comforter is coming. He will comfort thee. The Comforter is coming, and I believe has come. First at the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Comforter has come. Then at the day of Pentecost, the promised Comforter 
whom Christ called another comforter, has come. According even to the words here of Isaiah, the prophet, the comforter has come. Do not all these blessings that Isaiah has uttered, do they not all speak of the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit given from the Father through the Son? Isn't that what we find Christ speaking of in John in the 14th chapter? John 14 at verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells us, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. Isn't that what Isaiah is talking about? The one that's going to comfort them, the Holy One of Israel, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. Ye know him, for he abideth with you, and shall be in you, shall be in you. I will not leave you desolate, or I will not leave you orphans. I come unto you. The Comforter has come, and he's sending another Comforter. First, as I said, at the Incarnation, and then on the day of Pentecost, another Comforter. The Spirit of Christ. He says, I come to you. I will send another Comforter. And he shall be in you. One has written, well, Hugh Martin, a Scottish preacher, said this, I do not promise you, he's speaking for Christ in these words that we just looked at, I do not promise you the Comforter as a substitute for my presence but exactly as securing and retaining my presence with you. His whole work, that's the end of that quote, his whole work shall be, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's whole work shall be to testify of me, Christ said, said elsewhere. He shall bear witness of me, he said. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. I believe he inspired the prophets. David was a prophet. I believe he inspired Psalm 23. I believe he inspired the fourth verse where David wrote, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thou art with me. I can imagine that he might have said, thou art in me. Don't want to make a big argument about that. That's what we're looking at is the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us. Thou art in me, Christ in you. Christ in me, Christ in us. The hope of glory. The Spirit was promised covenantally in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 and the 27th verse. What did God say? through Ezekiel, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The Holy Spirit promised in that new covenant, promise. The Holy Spirit was promised by Christ as we just read 
I will not leave you orphans. I will send another comforter. I will send another comforter. I am a comforter, the comforter. I will send another comforter, the comforter. And he will take the things of me and show them unto you. I will not leave you orphans. And of course, in Acts 2, we remember, we know that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when many started speaking in other tongues and so on, and the people around thought they were drunken, and Peter rose up and said, they're not drunken. This is that which God said through Joel. That which God promised was going to happen. This outpouring of God, the Holy Spirit. And God fell upon them, we could put it that way. God came down upon them. The Holy Spirit rested upon them. But even as Jesus suggested that the Holy Spirit was coming to speak of him, and as it has been suggested that this is the Spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in us, Paul said in Galatians, as we remember Galatians 2.20, Christ liveth in me. How? Christ lives in me by another comforter. Christ lives in me by the Holy Spirit. Christ is in us. Christ is in his people. I will not leave you nor forsake you, he promised. And he didn't. He sent another comforter. Jeremiah pleads Again, even as Isaiah was writing to Judah, preaching, we may say, to Judah, Jeremiah pleads in a prayer, what most writers consider to be a a prayer that was placed upon the lips of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14. And here we have a situation where Judah, again, has got its back up against the wall. There's no water. There's terrible drought. We could read the first several verses before this prayer that begins at verse 7 of chapter 14. But the point is, there's a cry gone up. There's no water. Their vessels are empty, we're told. The ground is cracked. And all these other features that demonstrate the drought, the terrible drought. And Jeremiah takes it upon himself to cry unto God for Judah. Those wicked, those wicked backsliding people of God, if we can put it that way. God's covenant people in that age. Jeremiah takes it upon himself to pray for them, to pray in their room and in their stead, as it were. And he says, though our iniquities, at verse 7, testify against us, work thou for thy name's sake. Like Moses, you remember? When God spoke to Moses as though he were going to destroy the people and start another nation uh, under Moses. And Moses said, what about your name? What will the other nations say? And so on. 
Jeremiah says, though our iniquities testify against us, and it's always interesting how that these prophets, including Daniel and, and others, they put themselves in the place of sinfulness. Though our iniquities testify against us, Jeremiah says, work thou for thy name's sake, O Jehovah, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee, O thou hope of Israel the Savior thereof in the time of trouble. And then he asks this kind of strange question, why shouldest thou be as a sojourner in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be as a man affrighted, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Jehovah, art in like finishing this prayer up, like Isaiah finished his psalm up, yet thou, O Jehovah, art in the midst of us. You are in the midst of us, your people, and we are called by thy name. We rest in thy covenant promises. We are called by thy name. Leave us not. Thou, O Jehovah, art in the midst of us, pleading those covenant promises to continue in their midst, to be their God and they, his people, called by his name. Do we recognize the blessedness of being called by the name of Jesus Christ? Jeremiah brings this out, called by his name, to never leave them nor forsake them, to always Remain in their midst. Always be with us. Jesus promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God promised his people, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I hope that never becomes trite in our thinking. Oh, Lord God, never leave us. Always remain in our midst. And not only as a wayfaring stranger, not one simply turning aside for a night. Not one just pitching their tent, a pup tent maybe outside for a one night layover. But one that will abide with them. One that will abide. One that will remain. One that will stay. Don't be a stranger we hear down in this part of the country. Uh, hosts to their guests often when they're leaving. Now don't be a stranger. That's kind of what Jeremiah seems to be saying. Don't be a stranger. Job uses that language in one of those classic phrases from the book of Job in 19, 25 through 27. You'll recognize it immediately when we read of Job crying, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And at last he will stand up upon the earth. And after my skin, even this body, is destroyed. Then without or outside or out with my flesh shall I see God, whom I, even I, shall see on my side and mine eyes shall behold. And what? And not as a stranger. Don't be a stranger. Jeremiah cries to God, not as a stranger. Not as simply as some wafering stranger stopping for one night. Not some passerby. Not as a sojourner simply 
pitching their tent for a night, not even willing to come inside and visit. Don't, don't treat us that way, Lord, please. They're pleading, Jeremiah's pleading God's promises, God's awesome faithfulness. His great, unspeakable faithfulness. He sent a comforter and promised another. Jesus speaks again of these things, going back to John in the 14th chapter. He says of these things in verse 23, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Underline that, we. We will come unto him and make our abode with him. We, our, plural, subjects, we, our, my father and I will come unto him and make our abode with him. Those that are in Christ, the Father and the Son will come in through the Spirit and make their abode with their people. I do believe that that's what Isaiah is leading the people to sing. We will come and make our abode. At the beginning of that chapter 14 of John, a very uh, familiar portion of the book of John where many a gospel song, if I can call them something, has been written. In the second verse, Jesus says, after saying, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, I want that mansion on a hilltop. Some people sing. In my Father's house are many mansions, Jesus has said. In my margin, it says abiding places. Abiding places. And I believe that many of their translations, the New American Standard um, as dwelling places, which is essentially the same thing as abiding places. But the, the thing is that it's the same word. It's the same root that we find in 23 when, when Jesus has said, we will come unto him and make our abode, our abiding place, our dwelling place with him. And I'm a little bit disappointed in my ASV. They seem to have followed the King James and the New King James and insisting on using mansion here when there's no real warrant for doing so. And how much more blessed to recognize that he's talking about abiding places and then he goes on to say, that my Father and I will come and make our abode with you. Not in a mansion necessarily, but in an abiding place. We will abide. It has the, it has the sense, it has the 
the idea of continue or remain. It's not a one-night stand. It's I, we will abide with you. We will continue with you. We will remain with you. How important, how wonderful is that. Lo, I am with you always. My Father and I will come and make our abode with you. It means that the Lord will make his people to be his temple, wherein he will dwell continually. He will remain always. He will never leave you. It's his permanent, eternal abode. Christ, of course, came to tabernacle among us, did he not? He is Emmanuel, God with us. God come to abide with us. And we've just read that how, though he's leaving in one sense, he's leaving his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, another comforter, to keep his people, to be with his people, to abide with them. And in that, in the Holy Spirit abiding with his people, Christ is abiding with them through the spirit of Christ. I will be your God, God's crowning promise. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Paul says, of course, know ye not that ye are a temple of God. And the spirit of God dwells in you. Indwelling, abiding, Remaining, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you. In you, the Holy Spirit in you. To Timothy, he writes, that good thing which was committed unto thee, guard through the Holy Spirit which dwelleth in us. He's in all of God's people. Paul writes to the Romans, but ye are, in, ye are in the flesh. Ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. It struck me that Paul makes, we hear quite often, or we have over the years, about one of Paul's favorite phrases being in Christ. And it is that we're in Christ but it seems that Paul uses this language that Christ is in you just as much. Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He seems to make as much over Christ in us as us in Christ. They're both glorious truths, both, both glorious things to, I was going to say dwell upon, but I didn't unintentional pun there. In John 3.34 we're told that God has given the spirit to Christ without measure. Without measure he gave the spirit to Christ. Absolutely unlimited. Without measure of any sort. And I think that we can respond to that truth Reminding ourselves that by the light of the Spirit, one said, the man Christ Jesus thought all 
his thoughts. By the grace of the Spirit, Christ willed all his purposes. By the strength of the Spirit, Christ wrought all his works. Till finally he, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God. Through the Spirit, through the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us. In, in, in being given to Christ without measure. Is his dwelling in us not that? Is that not what grants to us the peace that passes understanding? Christ in us? Is that not which, from which we receive the joy that is unspeakable and full of glory? Christ in us? Is that not where we attain the hope that makes not ashamed in Christ, Christ in us, and the rest that remaineth through Christ being in us, the hope of glory. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Is Christ not our peace? Is he not our unspeakable joy? Is, is he not our glory? Is he not our hope? And is he not a, the Sabbath rest that remains for us? Again, I remind you what I said earlier about Galatians 3.14, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise, I believe, found in this song of Isaiah. The Comforter has come. What is that, what is that like? What should that be like for us and to us, in us? You remember that rather enigmatic account in Luke 24 of those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Chapter 24 and the 29th verse. Remember how that Christ drew near and so on and gently reproved them for not knowing more than what they seemed to know. But we read in the 29th verse, and they constrained him saying, abide with us. Abide with us. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. And he went in to abide with them. What is the result of Christ abiding with his people? And it came to pass when he had sat down with them to meet, he took the bread and blessed and breaking it, he gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, was not our heart burning within us? While he spake to us in the way, while he opened to us the scriptures. Was our heart not burning within us? What was the cause of that? Was it not Christ abiding with them in such a powerful way in this case? And what about the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 
Remember the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings, the fourth chapter? Second Kings chapter four, at verse eight. It fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God that passeth by us continually. Let us make, I pray thee, a little, <coughs> excuse me, a little chamber on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a seat and a candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. They provided a place for Elisha. Does that not give us a picture of what we ought to do in our lives regarding these temples, regarding our hosting the Lord Jesus Christ, hosting God the Father, hosting God the Holy Spirit? Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, we read. Ought we not to be about the business of preparing a place for our holy guest. In this our time, ought we not to be setting him a room in our hearts as the Shunammite wanted to set a little room, a little space for Elisha, the prophet of God? Ought we not to be doing so? Well, the simple fact is that in the kingdom of God, Christ lives in his people by his spirit which he has given them. Let us pray. Our Father, we rejoice. We praise thee. We would you like to sing this psalm of Isaiah again and again. We thank thee for thy glorious and undeserved mercy but deserved by our great high priest, our prophet, and our king, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee and praise thee through his name. Amen. <coughs> Just stand, please. Benediction from Zechariah 2.10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and will dwell in the midst of thee, saith Jehovah. Amen.